You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. Need our skates on today. It's going to be a, a bit of a bit of a big one. We are. Uh, if you haven't been with us or haven't been able to be with us the last couple of weeks, we've been been uh, in the book of Joshua. We've been looking at the the uh, promise of God to Israel and Joshua that after crossing the Jordan, they will be able to lay hold of his promises and the promise of, of land, a place in which they would be established as a nation so that they can glorify him. We're going to have a little bit more of a look at that. But we've come across a little bit of a problem, and that is that, that as they crossed the Jordan, they came to a city called Jericho. And, and we all know the Sunday school version of you know, Jericho, march around, the walls fall down, it's lots of fun. But the, the real story is, yes, that happens, but then God commands his people, and Joshua, of course, as well, to, to take no captives. And that is a very puzzling aspect of Scripture. It's one that has troubled many, many Christians throughout the ages. The Scripture's fairly clear that there are to be no survivors here. And we've been trying to get our heads around that. How do we reconcile a God of love and, and this apparent genocide? How do we understand that? So um, just by way of review, we'll be, we'll be looking at, at some of the principles we've been covering over the last few weeks. But let me, let me start by just picking, off, uh, or sorry, picking up from where I left off um, last week. Last week, I told you a little bit of a story, and, um, and, and I'm sort of delving into my background, uh, serving with Victoria Police for a few years here because, well, that was where I got to understand rule of law. And uh, as we understand the rule of God, there are some, I guess, some similarities. But um, I finished last week by telling a little bit of a story about a, about a time where I was serving in, in Carlton, which was fantastic. It was an amazing, amazing suburb, and it was um, a place I really enjoyed serving. But uh, I guess it was a, a hive of activity, and not all of the activity was good. And on one occasion, there was uh, a, a tendency for a lot of young people uh, to, to gather with their cars, a lot of pea platers and so forth, and they would spill oil over an intersection in Bouverie Street and, and basically drive the car into the, into the middle of the intersection, put their foot down, turn the wheel, and spin around, do donuts and so far. Well, this is donuts and oil. Normally, that's not a bad thing. I mean, but, but on this occasion, it was a bad thing. There were crowds of around a couple of thousand people that would gather around, and it was a very dangerous activity. Now, we um, had, on this particular Saturday night, driven into this intersection, and we were just going to what was called fly the flag. That is, you're in a marked police car, you drive through and you drive out again, and you just remind everybody that there are rules in this state, and they will be enforced. Um, but the week before, um, an unmarked police car had been jumped upon and, and written off, just the, you know, the damage to it, the bonnet and the roof and everything. And it was a little bit of a dangerous situation that was slowly more and more, week after week, spiralling out of control. So as the sergeant and I drove through this particular intersection, the idea was hopefully this particular Saturday night it would be all cool, calm, and collected, people would be behaving and just sort of showing off their car without showing off what their car could do. But alas, no. A particular individual just in front of us decided that, uh, you know, he was up for a couple of donuts, and so as he was spinning around, to his surprise, on one of those turns, he noticed the police car, our car, that was sitting behind him. 
So it was all a little bit embarrassing for him and well, awkward for us. And, and we had been sitting behind him, and of course he didn't realize that, but, but now he did. So he finished his, his donut and, and started to slowly and very carefully drive off down the street. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the, the rule of God and, and how it works. Now, just by way of summary, let me, let me start by, by talking about the, the rule of God as it pertains to, to Jericho. What was actually happening here has to do with, with the rule of God. And we, we look back in Genesis to, to talk all about the rule of God. And that the, the rule of God actually leads to life. The rule of God leads to blessing, life, blessing, and fruitfulness. The rule, is, the rule of God is a good thing. You want the rule of God. And then we looked at the idea, and particularly last week, that the, the rule of God follows the presence of God. The presence of God ushers in, if you like, the rule of God. So wherever God is present, there also is his rule. And where his rule is, there is life, there is blessing, and there is also fruitfulness as well. And I've got to just, before we go any further, I've got to just introduce one more principle. And, uh, and, and that, is, that is simply this, that the rule of God also leads or reveals the glory of God. So the presence of God ushers in the rule of God. The rule of God leads to life, blessing, fruitfulness, and, and that results in glory for God. And we sometimes put that up here, don't we? Abiding in God, there's his presence. It leads to blessing, life, fruitfulness, and that results in, in glory for God. We've been looking at this principle, but from the perspective of John 15, for about a million years. And, and, but it's because it's a fundamental principle. Um, and so God is glorified. He is revealed and seen for who he really is when the, the blessing and the fruitfulness and and, and the life of God is, is seen through his rule and, and his presence. Um, in, in Genesis um, 1 to 2, we ask the question, why the nation of Israel? Why establish it? Why give them a temporary residence in that land? How did that fit into the, the whole picture? And of course, we traced it back to Genesis chapter 12. And that was the whole idea of where it was promised to Abraham. I am going to make you a nation. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you land. That's part of the, part of the package. But why that? Well, in Genesis chapter, chapter 10, we have the table of nations. All the peoples of the world at this, at this point in time had not dispersed and been spread around the world. The table of nations, the whole world's population was pretty much centralized in, in one area. There it is in Genesis chapter 10. Now in Genesis chapter 11, they have an idea. Put enough people together and an idea is going to emerge eventually. And the idea was, why not? Build a tower, a really, really big one that reaches all the way to the heavens and, and make a name for ourselves. But here's the question. If all of the nations are gathered in one spot and they were going to make a name for themselves, who else was there? Like all the nations are gathered right there, right? They're, we're not making a name for ourselves so that other nations will look. They're, they're all there. The table of nations has them all collectively in one place. So to whom are they making this name for themselves? There's only one other person in this picture, God. And so the Tower of Babel is really a story about the attempt 
for mankind, humanity, to grab glory for themselves. We will make a name for ourselves. We'll build a big tower. We'll make a name for ourselves. But who else is there? Only God. We will. We don't need God's glory. We don't want to honor his name. We will build a tower to our glory. It was about humanity stealing glory. And so here's the intervention. In chapter 12, God says, ah, firstly, I'm just going to get a mess with some things here. I'm going to create the perfect circumstances for a mission organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators to be birthed. So we're just going to mess with your language here and thus the dispersion of, of, of peoples as we understand it. And then it gets a bit tricky that, that if they're capable of building this tower, they're capable of all sorts of things, including all sorts of evil. So, so as an act of grace, God messes with their plans. Chapter 12, all of a sudden, here's his intervention, and, and here is where, where God has a plan that he's starting to unveil for, for us. And he says, I will select the people of my own, Abraham, you are going to be their father. I'm going to, going to create a nation of my own, which I rule and demonstrate the, the, the beauty and the perfection and the wonder and the splendor of my rule. I will do that, and this nation will be a, a light to other nations. And so here we see that this is about the glory of God, glory that he wanted us to have. Watchman Nee bemoans the fact that, yes, you know, once we fell short of the glory of God, we often, don't we, in terms of justification and redemption, we often talk about the fact that we've got a sin problem. Yes, we do. We've got a sin problem that needs to be taken care of. But Watchman Nee makes this point. It was beautiful. We were just reading, reading about it in our, our little course, Thirst, at 4.12 this week. That God sees the sin problem, but the thing that we've lost most, and as a father, he bemoans most, is, oh, I created you for so much more. The glory that you could have had. You could have had so much glory. And you traded it in for some sort of makeshift glory of your own. Yes, the sin's a problem, but oh, you were made for so much more, and it grieves my father's heart. So this really is about God restoring to humanity the glory that we were made to enjoy. So what happens when we ignore the presence of God and the rule of God? There has to be... um, an intervention. Something has to, has to happen. God has to intervene in, in some way. What did we do back in Carlton on that, on that uh, particular night when that young man had spun the wheels and done those donuts? We had to intervene. We followed him through the intersection and, and we knew the danger. The crowd on that particular night was estimated, estimated later by some to be not two but up to 3,000 people. So we followed him just down the street a little bit, being the only unit there at that particular time. And then we put on the blueies, as we call them. They're now blueies and reddies. Doesn't really come out so well, does it? But anyway, we put on the lights. We pulled him over. We we intervened. Uh, Could we have just let it go? Maybe. 
But was that the right thing to do? No. The right thing was to, to intervene. And I've got to say, that wasn't easy to do. As soon as we, we did that, I, I got out of the car with a, with a, a little, little pad and, and so forth to write out a, to write out a ticket. And uh, as, I, as I shut the door, the sergeant who was driving leaned over and actually locked my door. <laughs> and I remember just looking at that in my periphery and thinking, odd. But <laughs> now I was standing outside and the crowd that had been down the street started to walk up the street and they were starting to crowd us. So, so that two or 3,000 people who were down at the intersection now sort of gathered around us. And so I was standing, standing there by myself, because the sergeant was still in the, in the car, and, and the very, very embarrassed young man was standing in front of me and, and was just visibly shaken, A, because, you know, he had just been sprung doing donuts, B, he really didn't know what, what was going to come next, but C, there was this massive crowd around us, and, and the feeling was riotous. The feeling was that this is going to get out of control very, very quickly. And so as I'm writing him a, him a ticket, um, all of a sudden I hear this, this uh, um, splat as somebody's meat pie hits the side of the police car. And I was thinking, great, now they're starting to, to throw things and, and there's some poor sucker back there that no longer has a meat pie. That was pretty silly. Um, but anyway, and then a, then a bottle comes over from the, from the crowd and, and just smashes at my, my feet and I'm still just standing there writing the ticket and I remember just looking up for a moment and staring into the crowd. I had no idea where the bottle came from, but they didn't know that. And I remember just staring into the crowd as if just, I dare you. And, uh, and nobody did. And so I went back to writing my ticket. <laughs> and, and then the sergeant came around and he, he joined me. And he stood with me. He had also locked his door. He was committed to standing and doing the right thing. The intervention could cost us, but it was important that we inter intervene. Um, you know, intervention from God always costs God, but it's the right thing to do. He needs to intervene. And what is the aim of, of God Inter intervening as he does. The aim is always the same. It's surrender. The presence of God ushers in the rule of God. And when that is not acknowledged, there needs to be inter intervention. And the aim of the intervention is to invite us to surrender to the rule of God. And when we do, we get to enjoy the life of God, the blessing of God, the fruit of God, and God's glory is ultimately revealed. Um, in, in summary, let me, let me put it this way. The rule of God would reveal the glory of God. In order to establish Israel in the new land, he would need also to establish his rule over them. This is, this is his objective. The external rule of God over Israel administered by priests, prophets, judges, and eventually kings as well, would serve to point to a day in which his rule would become internal. The second Joshua, and Joshua the name means God saves, the second Joshua would establish in us a new heart, and the Spirit of God would administer his presence, rule, life, and glory. This is the purpose. This is what, 
what God was up to as he was ushering in his rule here in the promised land. Now, just getting our heads around this a little, a little bit more, the word um, to devote the things as, as they would take the city, the walls would fall down, you could go in, but you must devote everything to me, says God. Haran um, means to irrevocably give, uh, give over things or persons. It is meaning to, to consecrate. Um, and it's mentioned a couple of times, but particularly in chapter 6, verse 21, we read, They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and, and donkeys as, as well. So let me just say a few things about this word and the meaning of devotion and what is going on here. Firstly, we need to note that these two rules, the rule of God and the rule of the land into which they went, were incompatible. There could be no coexistence. It would be like putting exhaust fumes into your oxygen tank before you go scuba diving. They, they could not coexist. One would poison the other. The second thing to note is there is an element of judgment here, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. This is not the same judgment as we read about later on with the Amalekites. In Deuteronomy 25, there are very specific instructions to God's people about dealing with the Amalekites. And that's a bit of a different story because the Amalekites were the arch rival to Israel. There was a special stubbornness and rivalry there with the Amalekites that need a special treatment. Then that comes on later in 1 Samuel with, with the story of Saul. But that's different. We won't be able to treat that just at the moment. But there is nonetheless an element of judgment here as well. But we need to think about judgment in terms of, of discernment. You see, we want nowadays, don't we, justice. But somehow, strangely, we want justice without any judgment. But how can there be justice without discernment? Judgment, remember, can have a punitive aspect to it, but it also has a discerning aspect to it as well. So we need to understand that there was an element of judgment here, and a judgment that the rule of this land is a bad rule. It is a poisonous rule. And there is no compatibility with the rule of the rule of God. That is one of the things going on here. So it seems to be about ensuring that the rule of God, what is happening here in Jericho, that the rule of God is neither diluted nor compromised. We read in Deuteronomy 20, and you can have a look at this sometime, and it actually probably do you good to have a little bit of a look at that, but there are, there are rules of engagement for God's people. Interestingly, in Deuteronomy 20, Firstly, for the soldiers of Israel, there are exceptions. You know, when you go to war, if you've just been married, you don't have to fight. If you've just built a house, you don't have to fight. If you've just planted a vineyard, you don't have to fight. Isn't that, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Can you imagine going to work and say, hey, hey, boss, I'm just wondering if I could take a few months off. I've been doing some gardening, you see. And, you know, how, how do you reckon that would play? Of course, a little bit different here because the vineyard was a kind of a source of livelihood and, and so forth. But, but there are exceptions. There are rules of engagement here. Um, there's even one for if you're feeling a bit scared. So if you're a little bit fearful going into war, you don't have to go. 
lest your fear actually kind of becomes contagious and you get everybody sort of running away. Uh, I, I know, that bit sounds a bit Monty Python-ish, doesn't it? But, but there are rules of engagement. God seems to say, okay, you are, going to, you are going to fight on my behalf, but you need to do it my way. But here's, here's some other things that Deuteronomy 20 tells us. Always offer the option of surrender. Always offer the option of surrender. And if the offer is taken up, then um, those that surrender will be your servants. They will actually be, be, be brought into the nation and, and they will serve you and, and so forth. Why serve you? Because you, again, don't want to be influenced by their gods. They are to be influenced by me. Um, now, that, that didn't apply to, to males. Um, and there's another exception there that is true generally, but not of the immediate nations around you. In other words, those nations in the promised land didn't get that exception. Okay, now why? What's going on there? All right, here's something else to notice. The war and the battle and those instructions was not to the whole nation. It was not some scorched earth policy. It was not some some ethnic cleansing. It was just to the cities. And it seems that the strategy here is that that once the cities are are decimated, an agrarian people, that means people whose livelihood was basically farming, um, a lot of them, these were not professional soldiers, is basically an agrarian community. You, you farmed. You had a city where you could come and, and trade, you know, uh, one ox for another or whatever it might be. And, and you would do your trade and, in, you know, you'd, you'd have your little cities. But if the city was actually destroyed, there'd be, there'd be nothing to stay there for. So you would be forced out of the land. The preference seems to be here that basically as Israel moves in, everybody moves out. But... For those who chose to remain in the cities, those cities needed to be destroyed. If you remained in the cities, you were taking a stand. You basically had chosen not to flee when you could have. Now, remember, one of the interesting things was, and it sounds at first like a boast, but after they crossed the River Jordan, we we have here a little notation that everybody was filled with fear. Everybody was scared. Everybody had heard the rumors This was not just a boast. This was a warning. This was mercy. This was God's way of letting letting it be known that that the God of the Israels is a powerful God. Look, he he can even stop the flow of the mighty Jordan River. Look at that. Now, do you want to deal with that God or not? Now, the, the smart answer was, no, and I'm off. But for those who decided to stay and to lock themselves down in the city, well, that had to be, that had to be dealt with. And so this seems to be the, the strategy as God was, was moving throughout the land, disperse the, the peoples. Thus, in verse 26, and again, a little bit of a surprising thought here, uh, Joshua actually curses Anyone who tries to rebuild the city. Now, why that? Is that, is that an invitation to say that, that Christian cursing is a thing? No. What's going on there? The idea is that the city must be totally destroyed and never rebuilt. A curse remains upon anyone who does that. Because if the city is rebuilt, it's an invitation for 
old influences to come back into the land, and that is not to be. That's why it was a total destruction of the city. That seems to be what's, what's going on there. Um, just recently, we're, we're uh, doing a lot of tidying up at home, and we got into the pantry, and I can't imagine, thinking back to it, I was actually tidying up the pantry. I can only think that I must have been looking for something, but, but as I reached for some flour... There was a little bit of a sign that all was not well. There was a leak in the packet of flour. And as I looked more closely, it looked like the, the packet, and you've, you've, you've seen this before, had been eaten away a little bit. And sure enough, on closer inspection, we had a weevil problem. There were weevils in the flour. As you know, I guess if you cook them out, it's not too much of a problem. But the, the problem is you can't isolate the problem, can you? The I. Once the weevils are into, you know, uh, your flour or your cereal or whatever it is, it's all got to go. Because once they're in, it is, it is going to pollute everything else. And it seems that part of the strategy here for, for an Israel, a nation that God always knew had the potential to be tempted by the gods of the Canaanites, by the gods of the land, when that temptation was always going to be there and always going to be real, like, like weevils, it just had to be gotten rid of, the whole lot. There was to be no cohabitation, no coexistence here with the peoples or their gods or their rule of law. It could not, it could not happen. But just so, we can't dodge the biggie here, can we? Let's, let's tackle this. What about the women and children? Got to ask that question. What do we do about that? How do we understand that? Well, firstly, let me, let me just try and tackle it this way. There is in our day and age something of a misguided humanism, an optimism about the potential of humanity to do good. Why is that? I think largely because we live in a particular era, and I'm going to call it the Thank you, Jesus era. Thank you, Jesus. You have an education. Where, where in Western society did the idea of offering education to all come from? Thank you, Jesus. You have had various difficulties, physically speaking, over the, your life if you've lived long enough, and you've at one point or another possibly even visited a doctor or a hospital. Where did the idea of medical care and hospitals come from in Western civilization? Thank you, Jesus. We live in a thank you, Jesus culture, and we have forgotten that so much of what we enjoy is really thank you, Jesus. Whether it be schools, hospitals, the wages that you earn, unions. Yeah, you, I know nowadays you might not think it, but originally, thank you, Jesus. Unions to protect the rights of, of workers. Holidays, voting, free speech. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We live in a thank you, Jesus era. Peter Singer, not a Christian, but a very honest ethicist. Uh, he's an Australian, actually, but, but teaches um, in the US, one of the Ivy Leagues. I can't remember. But uh, I think Harvard. But, but Peter Singer is an ethicist and an honest one. He basically says that the, the notion of attributing value to life in Western society ultimately is, comes or stems from Judeo-Christian values. 
and in his opinion, it's wrong. In his opinion, there is only one way to, to validate life, and that is what will that life contribute to society? So he actually is an advocate. He says, most of us who do not believe in a God have no right to believe that human life intrinsically has value. Most of us who do not believe in a God, he's talking about atheists there and agnostics, he said, we need to concede that we have no right to believe in intrinsic value of human life. The only way to place a value on human life is their contribution. So, frankly speaking, euthanasia should be the norm. Um, the disabled have no real place in society, and so on and so on and so on. He would be an advocate of fourth-term abortions. After a baby is born, if it does not thrive, if it does not contribute to society, it is invalid as a life form. As I say, you might not like what he's saying. I don't like what he's saying, but he's honest as an ethicist. He realizes that we live in a thank you Jesus era, but he's not thanking Jesus, so he gets to play with the rules. As I say, there is a rather misguided humanism that is very, very prevalent in our society. Les Beauchamp, a pastor in the US, warns when talking about this issue about he just says, let's be careful about becoming all, all high and mighty about this, as if we are better judges of things than God. He quotes the, the blogspot dwindlinginunbelief.blogspot.com. These are not Christians. They, they say, having a look at scriptures, that there's some 2,476,633 million people who died in these campaigns. Isn't it interesting? The only time that atheists actually exaggerate the figures in the Bible is when it's bad news. But anyway, that's probably not the case. But they go on and they say, if you add the other five occasions of, of sort of mass murder, um, the flood, um, the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, um, and then, of course, the campaigns, and lastly, the um, Amalekites with Saul. If you add that together, they estimate that basically God does away with some 25 million people. But, says Les, just in the USA alone, in 43 years since Roe versus Wade, 54 million, over double that number, this is just since Roe versus Wade, 54 million, 586, 256 children, it's estimated, had their lives taken from them whilst in the comfort of their mother's womb. Now, the one in the Old Testament is abhorrent. Unless it's for a good reason. What we are doing today is predominantly for convenience. So as Les says, let's be very careful in our misguided humanism. Let's be very careful before we get all high and mighty about this. I mean, we could go on, we could talk about Rwanda, where 800,000 people hacked to death their own countrymen in 100 days. We could talk about the Holocaust. We could talk about so many of our wars. We could go on and on and on. And we could then ask ourselves the question, are we really that good as humanity? Really? Are we really that good? Humanity seems to be quite capable of unrestrained evil without blaming the God that we don't believe in. 
That's today. And things are better today than they were in the promised land. In that day, it was not a thank you, Jesus era. There was no Judeo-Christian influence yet. But that was about to change into that world. Things were very, very different. It was an evil world, and there's no serious historian who tries to argue otherwise. Rape, child sacrifice, murder, these things were commonplace. They are known and they are recorded. That's the sort of world that Israel was coming into. And there was to be absolutely no chance of that infiltrating and corrupting this new nation formed under the rule of God. The other thing, just as we ask the question about women and children, is noting again that there can be no justice without judgment. Um, most of us pull on a pair of jeans when we go shopping, don't we? And if they're too small, we don't say, oh, well, <laughs> I guess this will do. We, we put them back, don't we? Where we get a better, more suitably suitably sized pair. If we were trying on a pair of shoes, we don't sort of say, oh, well, I guess, I guess I'll put up with them. We, we take them off, don't we? We, we put them back. We are what? We are, we are discerning that this is not the right fit. We are putting them aside. And then we are discerning that or judging that another pair will be more suited. Um, justice requires judgment. It requires discernment. It requires discretion. When did discretion become a negative word? If we're, you know, if we're wine tasting or something, a person who has discretion, discerning between a good wine and a bad wine, is all of a sudden, you know, revered. Oh, wow, yes, you're very discerning, aren't you? Discretion is actually a, a good thing, as is discrimination. Well, it can be. It means to judge correctly. And then lastly, I would say this, that there are things here that we don't know. There are things that we don't know. Um, when I stood surrounded by those two, 3,000 people, I didn't know until later that my sergeant was, was calling... Code 9, meaning police in trouble. And then locking the car and coming around to take his stand with me, knowing that help was on the way. That was, that was a part of the picture. I didn't know. I was just left standing there, writing out the ticket, trying to hold my own. And I guess doing the best bluff act that I could. That I actually am in control of this situation. I had no idea if I was or wasn't. But I did know. I had to take a stand. I had to intervene. I had to do the right thing. And then my sergeant came and he stood with me and, and before long, the, the crowd just started to part from, from, from the back, actually. It was just, just people started moving. There was this huge commotion and I, I wondered what it was and as I looked up, I, I suddenly saw the dancing blue lights of police cars coming from, from all over Melbourne. It only took a few minutes, but once that code nine is put out, the response is immediate and it was amazing. The cars just poured in from all over the place and, and quickly law and, and order was, was restored. But another part to that picture that I didn't know until later was a revelation to me only two weeks later 
when the newspapers were talking about huge police raids all over Victoria, arresting people and actually, actually uh, 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 taking, taking cars off them. And what had been going on was, and again, this was a big picture, I didn't even know about this, was, was police doing surveillance in surrounding buildings, taking photos and, and filming everything that was going, using infrared technology and so forth. They were capturing number plates and, and, and taking photographs of people and identifying them and so forth and slowly collecting the massive evidence that they needed to tackle this problem in a much, a much better form than just shifting it from one suburb to another. It was actually a very, very good and very, very successful operation. It was, it was brilliant. I didn't know that was going on. There was a much bigger picture. And I think we need to trust sometimes when we don't see the full picture in Scripture, we just know that there is, there is a fuller picture. There are things that we just sometimes don't know. For instance, the Old Testament is not all about death and destruction. There are just five episodes of this sort of, this sort of uh, thing happening on this scale. I mentioned them before, the flood, the plains of southern Gomorrah, Egypt, the campaigns, and the Amalekites. Did you know that the terms justice and mercy are mentioned more in the Old Testament than in the New Testament? And then lastly, let me lead you to... To this, to this scripture. It's well known, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. I'm going to leave, leave us with these, these thoughts. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Interesting, God doesn't guarantee that we will know everything. But he does give us a guarantee that he does. And his ways and his thoughts are higher. And, and here is probably the question for those of us who are believers. Will we trust him on that? His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. They are just on another plane altogether. They are higher than our thoughts. They are higher than our ways. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And will you trust him? When we don't understand his ways, trust in his character. He is who he says he is. Did you know these verses in the context actually are preceded by this? Verse 1, God's mercy Look here. This is all in the context of an invitation initially to Israel. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This is all in the context of the love and the mercy of God. And in, in verse 3, give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. This is a promise about the rule of God. The promise of my ways and my thoughts are higher than yours is in the context of, of a passage which is all about the mercy and the love of God. And this is explained or demonstrated through the rule of God. Where I am present, I will rule and, and listen 
Come and hear and listen that you may live. My rule equals life. Oh, please come and listen. Please, please. And then not just for Israel. Verse 5. Surely you will summon nations you know not and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. There's the glory of God. You see, here is our merciful God offering us his rule, saying, come and follow my rule. It brings life. And then, then expanding that out. You see, this is not so much ethnocentric as ethnocentrifical. It's, it's this, this from the center going out, the rule of God going out like a light to the nation saying, see, my rule results in my glory and my glory as it goes out will attract the nations and they will come running to you because they will want my rule as well for my rule is good. See how it all unfolds? Here is the, the splendor and, and the wonder of God's plan. This will result in glory and will attract all the nations. But lastly, and here's an inescapable truth. The rule of God requires the surrender of God. That was the S. When there's intervention, it's an invitation to come under the rule of God. It requires surrender. It always requires surrender. And here is Isaiah saying the same thing. So seek the Lord. Here's the surrender bit. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. An invitation to come to God and surrender to his rule. That's what God is, is offering, offering here. And so I would finish. Oh, that's been a big one, hasn't it? Wish I could have fitted in more stories for you. I did my best. There's a lot to chew on. Listen, if, if there are still troubling elements about what I've talked about today, come and, come and talk to me. Have another listen to this on the podcast. As I said, it's about like drinking from a fire hose, isn't it? There's a lot to get your head around. But I want you to take away this. God is good. He loves you. He loves you. He is merciful. His rule is something that you should always seek. It's always good. It brings life, blessing, and fruit. It follows naturally from the presence of God. Don't forget to focus Firstly, on the presence of God, which ushers in the rule of God, which brings blessing to your life. But where that is not sorry, surrender, God will intervene in some way or another. He will judge that which is right from that which is wrong. That's what justice is all about. But it always comes with an invitation for you to surrender to Him. This, this will result in the life you've always wanted. This will result in the blessing that he promises. This is a picture of the promised land, the land that God wants for you and I to take a hold of. And it will lead to his glory and his splendor. And there's the missional element as a witness to the world 
of just how loving he is. Let's pray. When we don't understand his ways, we trust in his character. He's a loving, merciful, and good God. And he invites you this morning to submit or surrender afresh every aspect of your life to his rule. His judgments are good and perfect. You can trust him. He loves you. Maybe this morning it's even helpful for you to create a picture. Often we talk about the very center of our being as being like our heart. And and maybe you would like with open hands to offer your heavenly Father once more your heart. The very center of your being, the throne room of your life. Say, I surrender it to you. You are good and loving and merciful. I don't always understand your ways, but I trust you. Here I am, abandoned to you. Let it be. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we can trust it. I thank you that you instruct us through it. And even when it is a difficult teaching, nonetheless, by your spirit, through your word, you speak to us. And I thank you for that. Would you continue to teach us? Would you continue to make clear what might not be clear? Would you give us tender hearts towards you and your word? Help us, we pray. And in all matters, we, we surrender ourselves to you because your rule requires surrender. And you deserve it. We love you, Lord. We love you. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.